0: all the truth, who spread all the hatred and poison the roots, who hide behind TVs, computers, and spies. I just want you to know that you see through your lies. Oh, you suck up all the money and you leave us with crumbs. They expect us to be grateful, but we're not that dumb. You feed on the poor and you leave them for dead and we know that your hunger can never be fed. How fine are your mansions, and your golf courses too How rich are your relatives, you've got quite a few Your money uncountable, investments unknown You're a mystery until your cover gets blown Now I know who you love and who you despise. You love yourself first with a narcissist's eyes, and you despise anybody who calls out your game. Well, I'm calling you now, so take your best aim. You were born into money, so how would you know? We're just here to be used for your revenue flow, like a fistful of numbers, like something to earn. Yeah, but some of those. a baby in swaddling, you stuck on your thumb But your thumb is a cell phone, that's how it gets done With your midnight explosion, your rants and your bile Is it any wonder we become so reviled? Go out into the world and see who we are dark nation under a dangerous star armed and unstable with a tyrant's design it's come to this yes it's the end of the line yeah, and i hope that you fall and you fall so hard but you cannot be saved from your dead house card with your memory buried so no one will know how this once great nation could fall so low we will go on yes we will survive out into the future our beauty will thrive with our face to the sun and our backs to the rain and no one will ever remember your name with our face to the sun and our backs to the rain and yeah, no one will ever remember your name.
1: Jim Page singing Masters of Lies. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or you can follow on Twitter at bernieus 2020. You can find out more about Bernie 2020 at bernie-2020.com. You can find out about all my other podcasts at movingtrainmedia.com. There you'll find links to make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and my other podcasts free and independent. First up is a piece written by Chris hedges and this is published at sheer post police take the knee nascar and the u.s marine corps ban the display of the confederate flag nancy pelosi uses a kentis scarf as a political prop joe biden one of the driving forces behind militarized police the massive expansion of mass incarceration and the doubling and tripling of sentences speaks at George Floyd's funeral. The National Football League apologizes for its insensitivity to racism, although no teams appear to be negotiating with Colin Kaepernick. The mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bauer, had the words Black Lives Matter painted in 35-foot-tall letters on a street near the White House, but has also proposed a $45 million increase in the police budget in the construction of a 500 million dollar new jail the press which does not confront corporate power and rarely covers the poor rendering them and their communities invisible engages in circular firing squads sacking or admonishing editors and journalists for racially insensitive thought crimes to advertise its commitment to people of color once again, we see proposed legislation to mandate police reform, more body cameras, consent decrees, revised use of force policies, banning chokeholds, civilian review boards, requiring officers to intervene when they see misconduct, banning no knock search warrants, more training in de escalation tactics, a requirement by law enforcement agencies to report use of force data nationally enforced standards for police training, and greater diversity. Proposals made and in several cases adopted in the wake of numerous other police murders, including those of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and Philando Castile. The Minneapolis Police Department, for example, established a duty to intervene requirement by police officers after the 2014 killing of Brown in Ferguson. This requirement did not save Floyd. Police unions, often little more than white hate groups, continue to have the unassailable power to brush aside would-be reformers, including community review boards, mayors, and police chiefs. These unions generously bankroll the campaigns of elected officials, including public prosecutors, who do their bidding. Police unions and associations have contributed $7 million to candidates running for office in New York State alone including $600,000, to Andrew Cuomo during his gubernatorial campaigns. It is, as Yogi Berra said, déjà vu all over again. The public displays of solidarity are, as in the past, smoke and mirrors, a pantomime of faux anguish and empathy by bankrupt ruling elites including most black politicians groomed by the Democratic Party and out of touch with the daily humiliation, stress of economic misery, and suffering that defines the lives of many of the protesters. These elites have no intention of instituting anything more than cosmetic change. They refuse to ask the questions that matter because they do not want to hear the answers. They are systems managers, They use these symbolic gestures to gaslight the public and leave our failed democracy from which they and their corporate benefactors benefit untouched. What we are watching in this outpouring of televised solidarity with the victims of police violence is an example of what Bertram Gross calls friendly fascism. The nice guy mask used to disguise the despotism of the ultra-rich and our corporate overseers. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, he is at least open about his racism, lust for state violence, and commitment to white supremacy. The crisis we face is not, as the ruling elites want us to believe, limited to police violence. It is a class and generational revolt. It will not be solved with new police reforms, which always result, as Princeton professor Naomi Murakawa points out in her book, The First Civil Right how liberals built prison America, in less accountable, larger, and more lethal police forces. The problem is an economic and political system that has by design created a nation of serfs and obscenely rich masters. The problem is deindustrialization, offshoring of manufacturing, automation, and austerity programs that allow families to be priced out of our for-profit healthcare system, and see nearly one in five children, 12 and younger, without enough to eat. The problem is an electoral system that has legalized bribery designed to serve a tiny, unaccountable cabal of oligarchs that engage in legalized tax boycotts, deregulation, theft, and financial fraud. The problem is that at least half of the working class and working poor, a figure growing exponentially as the pandemic swells the ranks of the unemployed, Have been cast aside as human refuse and are being sacrificed on the altar of profit as the country reopens for business and the pandemic crashes in wave after wave on frontline workers the problem is a diversion of state resources including over half of all federal discretionary spending to an unaccountable military machine that wages endless and futile wars overseas the savage face of white supremacy beyond our border This military machine perfects its brutal tactics and tools for control on people of color in the Middle East, as it did in other eras in Vietnam, Latin America, and the Philippines. It passes on this knowledge, along with its surplus equipment, including sophisticated equipment for wholesale surveillance, drones, heavy armed SWAT teams, grenade launchers, and armored vehicles to police at home. Smashing down a door and terrorizing a family in a night police raid in Detroit looks no different from a night raid carried out against an Afghan family by army rangers in Kandahar. Empires eventually consume themselves. Thucydides wrote of the Athenian Empire that the tyranny it imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. The entrenched racism in America has always meant that poor people of color are the first cast aside in society and disproportionately suffer from the most brutal forms of social control meted out by the police and the prison system. But there will not be, as Martin Luther King pointed out, racial justice until there is economic justice. And it will not be economic justice until we wrest power back from the hands of our corporate masters. Until that happens, we will go through cycle after cycle of brutal police murders and cycle after cycle of the profuse apologies and promises of reform. We are trapped in, abu- in an abusive relationship. When we finally have enough, when we cry out in pain and walk out, our abuser comes after us with flowers and apologies and promises to change. Back we go for more. My hope is that this time around, the gaslighting will not work. The protesters that have taken to the streets in some 750 cities are young, diverse, angry, and savvy. Many were betrayed by the Democratic Party hierarchy, who once again ganged up on Bernie Sanders to shove a corporate stooge down our throats. The calculation by the ruling elites being that as awful as Biden is, we will vote for him because he is not Trump. That this tactic failed in 2016 doesn't seem to faze the oligarchs. Many of those in the streets can't find meaningful work, are often burdened by large sums of student debt, and have realized that in this world of serfs and masters, they don't have much of a future. They understand that if these protests are to succeed, they must be led by people of color. Those who suffer disproportionately from the inequality inequities, and violence meted out by the occupying forces of the corporate state. And they also know that social inequality is at the root of the evil we must vanquish. The ruling elites will never willingly defund or abolish the police, which cost taxpayers $100 billion annually and often eat up half of cities' budgets. For the same reason, they will never pay a minimum wage to the 2.3 million prisoners who work in our ever-expanding gulag. By defunding or abolishing the police or by paying prison workers fair wages, the primary bulwark used to keep a subjugated population in check will be removed, or, in the case of prisons, make the system of neo-slavery financially unsustainable. Rather, the elites, while assuring us that they feel our pain, will insist, as Biden is doing, that by throwing even more money at the police and increasing police numbers on the streets of our cities, police will be accountable. This is true, but the police will be accountable not to us, but to the ruling class. In 1994, then-Senator Biden pushed through the Violent Crime and Law Enforcement Act It was supported by the Congressional Black Caucus, evidence of the growing disconnect between the black political elites and those they should protect. The caucus has, in the face of the current crisis, once again called for the tired and toothless reforms that got us into this mess. Quote, Black elected officials have become adept at mobilizing the tropes of black identity without any of its political content, notes Kianga Yamata Taylor. In the New York Times the bill authorized 30.2 billion dollars over six years for police and prisons Biden boasted that he quote added back into the federal statutes over 50 death penalties 50 circumstances in which if a person is convicted of a crime at the federal level they are eligible for the death penalty the bill he bragged authorized quote over 70 increased 70 7, 0. 70 increased penalties and in new offenses covering violent crimes drug trafficking and gun crimes it also established a community oriented policing services or cops program that has handed more than 14 billion dollars to state and local governments most of the money they used to hire more police cops also provided 1 billion dollars to place police in schools accelerating the criminalization of children The 1994 bill more than doubled the prison population. The United States now has 25% of the world's prison population, although we are 4% of the world's population. Half of the 2.3 million people in our prisons have never been charged with physically harming another person, and 94% have never had a jury trial coerced to plea out in our dysfunctional judicial system. Biden proudly said in 1994 he represented a new Democratic Party that was tough on law and order. Quote, Let me define the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, he said at the time. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party is now for 60 new death penalties. That is what's in this bill. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party has 70 enhanced penalties, and my friend from California, Senator Dianne Feinstein, outlined every one of them. I gave her a list today. She asked, what's in there to every one of them? The liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for 100,000 cops. The liberal wing of the Democratic Party is for 125,000 new state prison cells. There is only one way to defeat these forces of occupation and the ruling elites they protect. It is not through voting. It will come from the streets. Where tens of thousands of courageous men and women facing arrest, indiscriminate police violence, economic despair, and the threat of COVID-19 are fighting for not only an end to racism, but for freedom. And next up is a piece written by Jake Johnson, published at CommonDreams.org. Slamming the GOP's newly unveiled policing reform bill as inadequate to the task of curbing police violence and brutality, Senator Bernie Sanders delivered a speech Wednesday urging the Senate to pass bold legislation that abolishes qualified immunity for law enforcement, bans police use of facial recognition technology, and ends the transfer of U.S. military equipment to local police departments. Quote, Now is not the time to think small or respond with superficial bureaucratic proposals, Sanders said on the Senate floor, referring to the bill introduced Wednesday by Senator Tim Scott. Now is not the time for more studies. Now is a time to hold racist and corrupt police officers and police departments accountable for their actions. The Republican bill, which was immediately criticized as insufficient by civil rights groups, includes a narrow set of proposals to incentivize police departments to offer de-escalation training, establish a, quote, museum curriculum to educate law enforcement personnel about the history of racism, and restrict the use of chokeholds by officers. The GOP measure, titled The Justice Act, does not touch qualified immunity a long-standing legal doctrine that gives police officers sweeping protections from civil lawsuits. The Trump White House has also voiced opposition to abolishing qualified immunity. While praising the nationwide protest movement sparked by the killing of George Floyd for forcing legislators to respond to police violence and systemic racism, Sanders said the Republican legislation, quote, goes nowhere near far enough to address the demands of hundreds of thousands of people who have taken to the streets, demanding real change. Sanders put forth a series of transformative policy solutions that would help get at the root of economic and social conditions that perpetuate inequality and state violence. Quote, Now is the time to implement far-reaching reforms that will protect people and communities that have suffered police brutality, torture, and murder For far too long, said the Vermont senator. And now is the time to act boldly to protect the First Amendment right to protest. And next up is another piece by Jake Johnson, also published at CommonDreams.org. Senator Bernie Sanders on Thursday called on Congress to enact a total ban on police use of facial recognition technology. After Microsoft's president, said the company following a sustained outside-pressure campaign, will not sell its surveillance software to law enforcement until stricter privacy regulations are implemented. Quote, "...facial recognition technology violates the privacy and civil liberties of Americans and deepens racial bias in policing," the Vermont senator tweeted. Congress must ban facial recognition technology for all policing. It is not the first time Sanders has made the demand as a proposal to ban the use of facial recognition software for policing was included in his 2020 presidential campaign's criminal justice reform agenda. Sanders' demand came after Microsoft President Brad Smith said during an event hosted by the Washington Post that his company, quote, "...will not sell facial recognition technology to police departments in the United States until we have a national law in place grounded in human rights that will govern this technology." Smith clarified that Microsoft does not currently provide facial recognition technology to U.S. police. And this is exactly what Chris Hedges was writing about in the first piece that I read. It's this uh, faux um, standing up for what's right, but not actually doing anything substantive. I mean, to say, we're not going to sell this until there's better laws in place just means that they're going to lobby for, those laws to be in place and you can guarantee those laws that they lobby for are not going to be protective of the public. They're going to be protective of their software, their systems and the people, AKA the police who use those systems. As Common Dreams reported Thursday, Amazon, which has been selling its facial recognition product to law enforcement for years, also committed to temporarily bar police from using its notoriously inaccurate recognition software. Matt Cagle, technology and civil liberties attorney with the ACLU of Northern California, said in a statement that, quote, when even the makers of face recognition refuse to sell this surveillance technology because it's so dangerous, lawmakers can no longer deny the threats to our rights and liberties and amazon of course sells the famous ring doorbell which has uh video maybe does not have high quality facial recognition yet maybe it does uh and though they they very regularly Work with the police departments and give those devices to police departments, um, and sell those devices through police departments and then provide access to those videos, to those police departments. Finishing up the story quote, Congress and legislatures nationwide must swiftly stop law enforcement use of face recognition said Cagle. It should not have taken the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and far too many other black people, hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets, brutal law enforcement attacks against protesters and journalists and the deployment of military grade surveillance equipment on protests led by black activists for these companies to wake up to the everyday realities of police surveillance for black and brown communities. And next up is a piece uh, published at InTheseTimes.com, written by Hamilton Nolan. Among the many good ideas for changing the tendency of U.S. police to brutalize people and ruin lives, one stands out as the most direct, having fewer police. We've heard much about how politically difficult it can be for elected officials to cut police department budgets. Well, guess what? It just so happens that every city in America is now in the midst of a historic budget crisis. There's never been an easier time to defund the cops. There are a host of policy changes that can help make it less likely that citizens will be the subject of abuse from police You can impose stricter rules about use of force you can establish stronger civilian review boards to hold police accountable you can change provisions in police union contracts that protect bad officers from oversight all of these things are fine objectives but nothing will do more to stop police violence than simply giving police departments less money so that there will be fewer police on the streets when we have things they will be used this is the basic argument against Having a gun in your home statistics show that you are more likely to be shot if you have one if you do not have a gun you will not shoot yourself with that gun and nobody else will shoot you with it likewise with police just as Americans are over incarcerated so too are they over policed the entire idea that more police equals more public safety has always been a myth and the protests in the streets of America today are proof of how deadly that myth has been. In fact, there is evidence that less aggressive policing leads to less major crime. The fact that cutting police department budgets can be strong net good for social justice is not a new insight. Activists across the country have long recognized this, and many of them are organizing to rein in police budgets right this moment. They're calling to cut police budgets in Philadelphia. They are calling to cut police budgets in Los Angeles. They are calling to cut police budgets in New York City. They are calling to cut police budgets in Chicago. Although there is more serious political momentum now than ever before to reduce police funding, in L.A., it is actually going to happen. It must also be noted that even after many decades of prominent police killings and protests, state and local spending on police has tripled Over the past 40 years, even in Democratic controlled cities, modern history has been one of the police departments accumulating more funding and power rather than the opposite. Even in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio, who ran as a police reformer, has found himself transformed into a groveling police apologist six years into the job. The most practical question at hand today is. How do we give these cowed state and local politicians the will to cut police budgets when they all seem terrified? The big bad policemen will be angry with them. It is important that most spineless and craven Democratic city leaders in America understand that right now at this very moment is without exaggeration, the easiest time in history for them to cut police budgets. That is true not only because of the thousands of people in the streets of their cities crying out for fundamental change, but also for a much simpler reason. The coronavirus shutdowns, the subsequent freeze of economic activity, and the utter failure of Congress to pass an adequate economic rescue package means that virtually every city and state government in the country is now in the midst of a sudden, unprecedented budget crisis. An unpredictable national catastrophe and our broken federal government response are forcing cities to cut billions of dollars from their budgets at the very same time that gargantuan citizen protests are demanding the defunding of police. The entire thing is really being set up on a tee here. A child could figure this one out. Even Bill de Blasio could on a good day. Cut the police budget to solve the budget crisis. If a mayor is too scared to admit that they are doing it because the cops are bad, they can just blame the coronavirus. Problem solved. Everyone wins. City budgets can be balanced. Citizens will be at lower risk of having their lives upended by racist policing, and politicians will be able to momentarily wriggle out of a tough spot without having to slash other legitimately more important city services as deeply as they would have otherwise. There is something quite satisfying in the idea of jujitsuing Mitch McConnell's stubborn unwillingness to save state and local governments into a mass defunding of police departments. This is how you use Republican hatred of all public services in service of the public. And next up is a piece written by Barbara Smith and published at bostonglobe.com. The Problem is White Supremacy. In her novella, In Darkness and Confusion, Anne Petrie provides a wrenching fictional account of the 1943 Harlem race riot. The story is told from the perspective of William, a working class husband and father whose son has been drafted into the army and sent for training in the no-man's land of rural Georgia. William and his wife Pink are worried because they have not heard from Sam for a long time. Through a chance encounter with one of Sam's friends, who had been stationed at the same camp, William discovers the reason Sam's letters stopped. He is in prison, sentenced to 20 years of hard labor for shooting the military police who shot him for refusing to move to the back of a segregated bus. The day after William finds out about his son's fate, Harlem explodes when a white police officer shoots a black soldier. William and Pink's grief about Sam and their pent-up fury from a lifetime of racial assaults propel them to join the rioters. Petrie brilliantly illuminates the logic of rioting by revealing her well-drawn characters in her lives why is this story written almost 80 years ago so relevant to what we face today in 1943 the armed services had not been desegregated brown versus board of education had not been decided the civil rights act and the voting rights act had not been passed affirmative action did not exist and no black person had ever been elected president. In 2020, all of these markers of racial progress and many more are part of the historical record. Yet Minneapolis and the entire country have erupted for the very same reason that Harlem did in 1943. A white police officer cavalierly executed a black man. The reason America's pattern of racial terrorism keeps repeating is because the system of white supremacy that spawns the terrorism remains intact. Despite the hand-wringing that occurs when the nation's racial value system gets exposed, usually by unspeakable acts of violence, the reality is that this country has never done anything to eradicate the root cause of these atrocities. America abolished chattel slavery, but quickly instituted peonage, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. It extended civil rights, then proceeded to erode them, especially voting rights. It ended legal segregation, but preserved widespread de facto segregation in schools, housing, and jobs. And despite initiating affirmative action, allowed employment discrimination and vast economic inequality to persist, Because the power structure has always refused to acknowledge the institution of white supremacy, many people do not believe it exists, and most people are confused about what the term even means. Toxic, as such beliefs are, white supremacy is not merely the individual delusion of being superior to black people. Institutionalized white supremacy does not need individual bigotry in order to function, because it is a universal operating system, that relies on entrenched patterns and practices to consistently disadvantage people of color and privilege whites. Efforts to diminish racial discrimination in specific socioeconomic sectors, programs to improve race relations, or attempts to get rid of individual prejudice, which are typical focuses of racial reform, leave the overarching system of white supremacy intact. Multiple lynchings during the coronavirus pandemic, which has disproportionately killed black, brown and indigenous people while expecting them to risk their lives at low wage jobs to make life comfortable for everyone else. At the same time that people of color are experiencing much higher rates of joblessness and poverty perfectly illustrate how relentless the engine of institutional white supremacy operates, privileging some and grievously destroying the lives of others in the aftermath of George Floyd's execution there is much discussion about the urgent need to change the culture of policing certainly this must occur but it is naive to think that the culture of policing can be changed without addressing what created that culture to begin with our current version of policing is rooted in the slave patrols whose job was to capture people who had escaped to criminalize black bodies, and to curtail black freedom. Using extreme violence to hold onto property, that is, other human beings, was universally accepted and legal. Police who act as an army of occupation in poor communities of color and as front line of mass incarceration have direct links to the tradition of the paddy rollers of the antebellum area. To change the culture of policing, we need to look at where that culture originated. We will also need to recognize that contemporary policing and the entire criminal injustice system are themselves essential to maintaining white power and control. Changing the culture of policing would require getting rid of the soil in which it grows. Changing the culture of policing necessitates eradicating white supremacy. There is little reason to believe even in the midst of a conflagration that the United States will change course and begin the Herculean task of dismantling this fundamentally undemocratic system. But what if it did? What would happen if we began an honest national dialogue about the disaster of white supremacy? What if we consistently used the words white supremacy so that everyone would have accurate language for conceptualizing what is actually going on. The way we describe this problem matters. For example, systemic racism clearly conveys the pervasiveness of racial oppression. But white supremacy goes further by indicating that there is a rigid nexus of power that protects and enforces it. What if there were informational campaigns to develop shared understandings about the ways white supremacy infiltrates every facet of life in the United States? Policing, courts, prisons, healthcare, education, housing, the economy, the environment, religion, science, technology, the arts, sports, and more. Minneapolis City, Council, City Councilor Andrea Jenkins has called for racism to be declared a public health emergency. What if there were public service announcements, like those we have seen during the pandemic, that provided data, cultural resources, and historical context about the many dimensions of systemic white supremacy, as well as steps for challenging it? What if we launched an initiative on the scale of the Marshall Plan or the space race to eradicate white supremacy? What if it were led by experts with the most detailed knowledge of how white supremacy in tandem with racial capitalism operates, that is, poor and working-class people of color. What if these experts partnered with researchers, advocates, and practitioners to provide exhaustive documentation, analysis, and comprehensive recommendations for ending the scourge of white supremacy once and for all? What if? After more than five centuries, there is much work to be done until this moment. I have had little reason to believe that it ever would be. But millions of people, of all races and backgrounds, in the streets, day after day, shouting that they are fed up with America's racial status quo and demanding change, give me cause for hope. It is much more likely, however, that the powers that be will offer band-aids and half-measures thus ensuring that white supremacy remains intact. Until this nation confronts white supremacy and commits to demolishing it brick by brick, police brutality, vigilante violence, and rampant inequality will continue, and America will move closer to becoming a failed state. And finally, uh, here is a piece on a speech given by Frederick Douglass on July 5, 1852, titled, What to the Slave is Fourth of July? This is published at STL American. It has a brief introduction and then has the text of the speech as the nation prepares to celebrate independence day, 2020 protests are underway with the intention of dismantling sy- systemic racism and initiating legislative reform for the sake of a more perfect and equitable union. Nearly 160 years before black lives matter has become the resounding message of demonstrators, legendary abolitionist Frederick Douglass, boldly proclaimed, quote, This Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To an audience gathered to commemorate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. When he delivered his famous speech, What to the Slave is Fourth of July, on July 5, 1852, millions of black Americans were in bondage, a fate Douglas had himself escaped in 1838. His words came a full decade before the Emancipation Proclamation granted black people a liberty so conditional that critical remnants of the cruel and dehumanizing institution are still glaringly apparent in present-day America. The full speech reads as follows. Fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this Republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too great, enough to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes, and for the good they did, and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar, and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God both for your sakes and ours that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful, For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs i am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak, and the lame man leap as in heart. But such is not the state of the case, I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us, the blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This fourth July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn to drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today if so there is a parallel to your conduct and let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the example of a nation whose crimes towering up to heaven were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in an irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of appealed and woe-smitten people. Quote, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they who wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view, standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine. I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity which is outraged, in the name of liberty which is fettered, in the name of constitution and the Bible which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America." I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will use the severest language I can command, and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice, or who is not at heart a slaveholder, shall not confess to be right and just. But I fancy I hear some of my audience say, quote, It is just in the circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less? Would you persuade more and rebuke less? Your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit, where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the enactment of laws for their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death, while only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that southern statute books are covered with the enactments forbidding, under severe fines and penalties, the teaching of the slave to read or to write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, that I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your streets, when the fowls of the air, when the cattle of your hills, when the fish of the sea and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then I will argue with you that the slave is a man, For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metal of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, orators, and teachers... That while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all confessing and worshipping the Christian's God and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave, we are called upon to prove that we are men. Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation as a matter beset with great difficulty involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice? Hard to be understood. How should I look today in the presence of Americans dividing and subdividing a discourse, to show that men have a natural right to freedom speaking of it relatively and positively negatively and affirmatively to do so would be to make myself ridiculous and to offer an insult to your understanding there is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him what am i to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with a lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters." Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine, that God did not establish it, that our doctors of divinity are mistaken? There is blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can may. I cannot. The time for such argument is past. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability, and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impotence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are, to him, mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world, travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that, for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope while drawing encouragement from the declaration of independence, the great principles it contains and the genius of American institutions. My spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age nations do not now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world and trot round in the same old path of its fathers, without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long-established customs of hurtful character could formally fence themselves in, and do their evil work with social impunity. Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few, and the multitude walked on in mental darkness. But a change has now come over the affairs of mankind, Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea, as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide, but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far-off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty let there be light has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. The iron shoe and crippled foot of China must be seen in contrast with nature. Africa must rise and put on her yet unwoven garment. Ethiopia shall stretch out her hand unto God. In the fervent aspirations of William Lloyd Garrison, I say, and let every heart join in saying it, Godspeed the year of jubilee, the wide world o'er, Where from the galling chains set free The oppressed shall vilely bend the knee, And wear the yoke of tyranny like brutes no more. That year will come and freedom's reign To man his blundered rights again restore. God speed the day when human blood shall cease to flow in every clime, be understood the claims of human brotherhood, and each return for evil, good, not blow for blow. That day will come all feuds to end and change into a faithful friend each foe. God speed the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor in a tyrant's present cower but to all manhood's stature tower by equal birth. That hour will come to each, to all, and from his prison-house to thrall go forth, until that year, day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the jive, the spoiler of his prey deprive, so witness heaven. And never from my chosen post whate'er the peril or the cost, be driven. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Remember, if you want to check out all the back episodes, find links to make a donation or to send me a message. You can go to Bernie-2020.com. You can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Here are Flowbots with Anne Braden. Thanks for listening.
0: What I've realized since is that it's a very painful process, but it is not destructive. It's, it's the road to deliberation. And what really happened in the 60s was that this country took just the first step toward admitting that it had been wrong on race. And creativity burst out in all directions.
2: From the color of the faces in Sunday songs To the hatred they raised all the youngsters on Once upon a time in this country long ago She knew there was something wrong Because the song said yellow, red, black and white Everyone precious in the path of Christ But what about the daughter of the woman cleaning their house? Wasn't she a child they were singing about? And if Jesus loves us black and white skin Why didn't her white mother invite them in? When did it become a room for no blacks to step in? How did she already know not to ask the question? Left lasting impressions Adolescence comforts gone She never thought things would ever change but she always knew there was something wrong herself, Mississippi, bound to help stop the legalized lynching of Mr. Willie McGee. But they couldn't stop it, so they thought that they'd talk to the governor about what happened and say we're tired of being used as an excuse to kill black men. But the cops wouldn't let them past, and these women, they struck them as uppity. So they hauled them all off to jail, and they called it protective custody. Then from her cell, she heard her jailers grumbling about outsiders. When she called them out and said she was from the south, they shouted, why is a nice southern lady making trouble for the governor she said i guess i'm not your type of lady and i guess i'm not your type of southerner but before you call me traitor well it's plainest just to say i was a child in mississippi but i'm ashamed of it today within all of your neighbors and family, friends. How would you cope facing the fact the flesh on their hands was tainted with sin? She faced this every day. People she saw on a regular basis. People she loved in several cases. People she knew were incredibly racist. It was painful, but she never stopped loving them, never stopped calling their names. And she never stopped being a Southern woman. And she never stopped fighting for change. And she saw that her struggle was in the tradition of ancestors never aware of her. It continues today, the soul of a Southerner born of the other America
3: no,
0: It's little compared to the effort you put into it, but if you see that as a part of this total movement to build a new world, you know what cathedral you're building when you put your stone in. America.